The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. On this episode of Jaws of Justice, we will begin our hour and hear host Keith Brownell's interview with Patrick Sumner, candidate for Unified Government District 2 Commissioner in Kansas City, Kansas. Voters will take to the polls Tuesday, August 1st, for primary elections that will ultimately reshape Wyandotte County's governing body for the next four years. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Tuesday. That's tomorrow. Please go vote. For the next part of our hour, host Keith Brownell speaks with Noreen Stokes and her attorney, Cindy L. Short. Noreen Stokes is the mother of Ryan Stokes, an African-American man who was gunned down by a Kansas City Police Department officer in the Power and Light District on July 28, 2013, after a drunk white man falsely accused Stokes of stealing his cell phone. An investigation revealed that Ryan Stokes didn't steal the phone, he was unarmed, and Ryan Stokes was surrendering to one officer when he was shot from behind by another KCPD officer. Noreen Stokes and her attorney, Cynthia L. Short of CLS Litigation and Consulting Services, LLC, took the case all the way to the United States Supreme Court, but the case was denied a hearing. We're not able to play it, but Keith Brownell has another outstanding commentary. Please, you can listen to it on our podcast, available on our Facebook page, or on the Jaws of Justice episode page on the KKFI website. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning, everyone. I'm with Mr. Patrick Sumner. He's running for the second district in Kansas City, Kansas. And he's here to talk to us today about his campaign. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Oh, great, Keith. Thank you so much for having me on today. I have a lot to talk about. There's a lot facing the people out here. And as you're well aware in Kansas City, Missouri, of course, where you live, but Kansas City, Kansas, there's, it's like I'll call it a small town with big city problems, okay? But we have a lot of good going on, too. Okay. Well, what inspired you to try to run for this district? Well, I found out that the existing commissioner, Brian McKiernan, was retiring from his, or not running again, so it was an open seat. So I didn't have to primary anybody from the left or any that kind of thing. You know, I wasn't angry about the seat or anything like that. I think Brian's had a pretty good reputation in the community as being pretty um, constituent friendly. So I just decided to throw my hat in the ring and it's been a real creative process for me. I'm kind of an artist and uh, activist in in my background. So I'm just getting the mobilization of getting my name recognition out there, the flyers and Spanish and English. It's it's been real exciting and I've got some volunteers to help me in canvassing and stuff like that. Well, can you give us a little background about yourself? Yeah, I'm Patrick Sumner. I've been doing civil rights here locally in the Kansas City metro area on both sides of the border, but when I was younger, mainly in Kansas City, Missouri. 
with um, I met Max Charles Jones from St. Stephen's Baptist Church and I guess that was 84. We met at an anti-apartheid march to Freeman Nelson Mandela and all those guys on Robben Island. And I went down to his church, St. Stephen's, and heard the big gospel choirs and heard him preach about social justice. And that was my first exposure to the black church and my first exposure to civil rights. But I started getting involved with him and we organized a youth group called the Kansas City Youth Collective back then. And we started marching and helping people with fair housing and a lot of local campaigns brought a lot of young people together. So I've been doing civil rights and I got involved in the anti-war movement after 9-11. Of course, I had also fought against the Contra War during the Reagan administration. So I've been doing activism now. I'm 56, about to be 57 on my birthday. There's a fundraiser for my campaign and May 12th. And so I've been doing activism now for almost, like I guess, 40 years. Now, is there anybody else that's running against you in this office that you're trying to get elected to? Yeah, I don't know if you know the the rapper Tiana, but she says don't give anybody any free publicity, but I'm just kidding, but mm -hmm. she's cool, but uh, it's all good. Um, his name is Bill Burns. He's a very nice man. I met him. I went to the Wyandotte Anti-Crime Coalition, a neighborhood association meeting. I was invited to speak. It, it wasn't a debate. He spoke and I spoke, and we both had some a little bit of Q&A time. He asked me to not attack him, and, I, and he wouldn't do, he attacked me, and I thought that was great. Now, I don't have any blemishes on my record, you know. I have a clean record in terms of never been fired for harassment or done any kind of criminal activity, you know, that kind of stuff. But I've always kind of tried to stay on the right side of the law and order and so forth and so on. But he seemed like a nice gentleman. He, he was on the commission, I think, before it was a unified government in the mid-80s, late-80s. He's been around Wyandotte a long time. He's well-known. He's, he's part of a certain faction. I think his cousin was the former Mayor David Alvey. He served one term before. Oh, yeah, Bill, his name's Bill Burns, and he's, his cousin, I believe, this is true, I hope so, is that his cousin was David Alvey, who was the last mayor before oh, okay. Tyrone Garner. He was a yeah, one-term mayor. But, so he's from a kind of a well, good lineage, a famous family in Wyandotte. Well, I like the idea of him asking you, not to try to attack him and agree and not to attack you because I think we need a little bit more of that, a lot more of that in, in politics now because it seems like it's all about slinging mud at your opponent and having mud slinged back at you. You know, now, of course, we need to know who we are electing when we go out to vote. You know, if a politician has done something that's really egregious it, it may need to be brought out and exposed to the public but just attacking people for the sake of attacking them i think just went way out of bounds and that seems to be the only thing a lot of politicians really have to run on was trying to make their opponents look bad but i hope that idea kind of catches on where you will have more people who say okay well let's just talk about the issues let's see what we have to offer the public and let them decide who they want to vote for We'll see how that turns out, and I do want to wish you good luck in your campaign. Thank you. Now, what type of residents and voters do you have in District 2? Well, I'll just start off with myself. I live in Strawberry Hill. The District 2, let me define it real quick geographically. It goes from Minnesota Avenue, which, you know, for people in the metro area, they may or may not know what that is, but in Kansas City, Kansas, of course, everybody knows it's like the main drag. It's like Main Street down there, you know. So it goes from Minnesota Avenue, which is... Gosh, I say 12, 15 blocks south of Quindaro, which everybody would know about. So Minnesota Avenue, south, 
through Central Avenue, all those neighborhoods, through Strawberry Hill, Cathedral, St. Peter's neighborhood, all the residential neighborhoods around Central Avenue, which are a lot of uh, Hispanic families and a lot of immigrant families and refugee families. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And then all the way down to Armordale, um, past uh, Kansas and Osage Avenues, down by the Caw River. So it's a, you know, it's about, I think, from what I understand, it's about 20,000 people, um, probably the poorest people in Wyandotte County. A concentration of those families and people, individuals, the poor, the people in poverty, and most impoverished census tracts in, in that, in zip codes in the state of Kansas, actually, not just the metro area, or in the metro area and the state of Kansas, and mm -hmm. certainly in Kansas City, Kansas. So, in the school district, uh, USD 500, the Kansas City, Kansas School District, there's, they teach children from families in 62 different languages to speak English. Oh, okay. You know, they obviously can't teach in 62 different languages. They don't have that capacity. The, te the teachers, the textbooks, the language teachers and stuff. But they teach ESL, <coughs> English as a second language, in 62 different languages. And that's not just Central American and Mexican, obviously, immigrants and things like that. It's people from Africa and Southeast Asia and Central Asia and Bhutan and Myanmar and all over the world. So... It's a concentration of the most demographically diverse and most impoverished people working poor. You know, I say working people working and trying to make a living, but it's a struggle out there. And District 2 is a concentration of that. There's a couple of food desert areas, I would call that, in the census tracts. So there's no active, like, grocery stores in a couple of major areas. Stuff like that's going on in the community that needs to be rectified. Now, obviously, a, a commissioner or even a mayor can't solve that single-handedly because you have to work with the business community and things like that. But we need to bring development into the east part of Kansas City, Kansas, the east side of Kansas City, Kansas, and central east, east side. So it's like, they, you've probably heard of Village West or you know, the soccer stadium out there, that kind of thing, and all the, the development in Piper and Western Wyandotte's been a really great thing for the economy, but some of that money never filtered back down to the east side. So I'm going to say, yes, we support the West Village and all taxes they can bring in but we support the east side too okay let me ask you this what are your views on subjects like black history and the lgbt community being taught in public schools and books being present in the library and removed from the library well actually interestingly i have more than a minor concentration academically in black studies and when i was in graduate school and even in undergrad at ku Went to Penn Valley here in Kansas City and a little bit in UMKC one semester, but then I went to KU and finished off my degree. And then I got a master's in 2005 from KU in the underground, I studied the Underground Railroad and I studied black history of the metropolitan area and the region, Kansas, Missouri border area, and uh, Oklahoma, Indian Territory, and Arkansas, some of that kind of thing. Civil War and things like that. So I have a really decent grasp of the black migration routes from both from northern Appalachia, Tennessee and Kentucky and Missouri and that kind of places and also from Oklahoma and Texas and Arkansas into Kansas City which does make it the barbecue capital not just because of the black food, the restaurants and, and uh, cultural foodways but also the white immigrants that came from all those same areas but they brought all those different traditions with them right here to the crossroads of the nation. And my knowledge of the black community also my history and activism has been strong all of my core supporters right now that are volunteering with me and canvassing with me are black men, and uh, several of them. 
And that's great because I used to run the homeless program in Kansas City, Kansas. And some of these guys who are helping me are people that I helped get apartments for several years back. And so that's nice. And so it's, a, it's an immersion in that culture for me as a white activist and a white politician. The second part of your question, you said black history and something else that interested me. About the LGBT community, oh, yes. uh, books being banned, okay, uh, yes. taken out of the libraries, and, well, and the subject being forbidden to talk about in schools. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my eldest child is a, and my daughter is a trans woman. And, um, I raised her as a boy, and we all went through that transition. She went through that transition, but I, I supported that. She's happy in her own skin, and she's doing what she wants, and I'm proud of her. She's beautiful, and she's active, and she's working, and she's creative and good. My son is graduating from high school this year and from Crossroads Academy, and he's fully identifying as a male, mm-hmm. as a boy or a young man. But I'm for everybody to be themselves. I always have been. And that ties into your censorship question. Obviously, I'm not going to sit here and tell somebody else what to say or think. I am a Democrat. I'm running on a, as a Democrat. But I'm not really running on a strong platform. I have some platform issues that we'll discuss. But I'm mainly running on responsiveness. And what I mean by that is, when's the last time you called a politician and they called you back an hour later? Right. You know, so I'm going to get on my phone, and if I'm in a meeting or doing something, I'll, I'll listen to your voicemail and get back to you. I can answer your messages on uh, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, my phone, text, and I'll call you back. And uh, so I'm running on a responsiveness thing. That ties into censorship because it's all about language. And communication is the key to our literature and to our history that forms our books and our libraries and our computers and our research things we research and the information that we need and I'm also for digital inclusion for impoverished families and children school children okay now the office that you're running for right now would you have any input or be in a position to be able to influence the materials that's being taught in schools and the books that's made available to the libraries no, I mean, that would be that obviously more of a school board president, school board membership, that kind of thing. But I mean, certainly, I looked it up. I, lo- I actually Googled it. I said, what, because in Wyandotte County in 1997, they, they unified their gut county and city government. So I'm basically going to be like a county commissioner and a city councilman wrapped into one. It's just called a unified government commissioner, District 2 in my case. And so you're basically just there to give people in your district a voice at the table of power. You're there to represent. And so I'm going to take people up on that. I'm going to take their points of view under consideration. I'm so anti-censorship, I'm perfectly willing to take a one-man stand, or a one-person stand, I should say, in this day and age, to take an unpopular position if I have to. Right. As one person on a council, I don't have any former pre-existing alliances. I have, like my good friend Brandon Ellington in Missouri, city council and the former state rep says, I neither bought in nor sold out. And I don't have any kind of ties in Kansas City, Kansas politics. It says I'm friends with some elected officials, but I know them, some judges and some, some county commissioners and that kind of thing. I know the mayor. I used to work with him when he was on the police force because I used to run the homeless program at the Wyandotte Center, the Frank Williams Outreach Center, which I was on your show talking about like 10 years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so uh, I worked with him on some loitering issues and things so where we could peaceably handle that without having people's feet broken in by car doors and stuff, which is some of the stuff I witnessed during that loitering crackdown back then. 
And so we, we fixed some of those issues and, and that was good for the health and safety of the community. <laughs> but also there are nuisance crimes associated with homelessness, which you have to mitigate through helping people out to get them apartments and doing different things, not just shipping them off to jail, you know, that kind of thing. So. Well, what is your position on sensible gun laws? Well, it's interesting you say that. And, and like I say, I'm not going to agree or disagree with everybody that comes to me who votes for me even or is a supporter of mine, per se. Mm -hmm. I have my own thoughts and my own things, but I've been really open-minded on the gun issue. Obviously, it's a constitutional right. I don't think that they, in the Second Amendment of the Bill of Rights, which, you know, I studied the founding of the Constitution as well in school and after I got out of graduate school. But I read, like, the, the framing, the letters of the framers, you know, Benjamin Franklin to James Mason and those kind of letters and Thomas Jefferson and stuff where they're talking about how the Bill of Rights has to be attached to the Constitution and it can only be ratified with the Bill of Rights attached because those specific rights that are in the Bill of Rights, like the freedom of speech, you know, things we're talking about, gun rights, Second Amendment, are not formally elucidated in the document of the body of the Constitution itself. So they came up with the ten, first ten Bill of, the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. And number two, they misquoted a lot. Because I don't think that we have these gun owners who have a right to bear arms. They don't think they're in a well-regulated militia that I know of in America at this present time. Right. But I think that, and it's hardly ever been argued before the Supreme Court, like maybe two or three times in the history of the entire Supreme Court have they ever taken up a Second Amendment issue. And uh, they've taken up First Amendment issues time and time again. Because that has to do with redress of grievances and free speech and freedom of the press and freedom of religion and all that. But I think that it's, it would be absolutely contrary to a good Democrat, <laughs> in my opinion, to take away guns from anyone, especially when people may have to protect themselves someday against tyranny. Right. In an economic, in, if we look at an economic system that's entirely imbalanced, you just can't leave the guns in the, in the hands of rich people or this kind of person or that kind of person. Everybody, and like my friend Brandon Ellington says, or has said in the past, poor people and black people and poor white people and everybody else needs to have a right to have a gun if they want one too for self-protection. And I'm, I'm for everybody to have that right, yes, but I'm also for sensible registration, right. mental health checks, back, criminal background checks. If you're like, to me, if you're a serial stalker or a sexual harasser or that kind of thing, you know, I don't think you should have access to it. Right. So yeah, sensible gun reform laws, I'm all about, and I will fight for that on the street corner or at the city council or at the commission. Right. You know, I hear people sometimes, and you just did it here a minute ago, make references to background checks as far as people having criminal records. Now, the people who are out here doing these, committing all these mass shootings and things like that, the people that's doing it don't have criminal records. And I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to feel like the society would be safer with guns in the hands of people that got criminal records than people that are at least no more in danger. You know, like, I'm a person, I have some criminal convictions. But having criminal convictions, that doesn't make me bulletproof. I still need protection myself, the same degree of protection that other people in society need from crazy people with guns. Right. At some point, I would hope somebody would come along, not saying that I, I wanted you to do that, but I would hope somebody would come along 
and argue those points. Now, in Missouri, they've already passed a law that says that if you don't have a violent offense, you can have a criminal record and you still be entitled to own a firearm. But I sometimes I feel that if you had people that may have possibly had criminal records, some of these mass shootings would have probably been prevented because I think they would shoot back. I agree. I used to be the only church I've ever actually been a formal member of was in Kansas City, Kansas, 20 years ago. And it was with a pastor named Reverend White, and he was a community missionary Baptist church. It was a black Baptist church. That's right, folks. I'm a black Baptist. <laughs> I don't know how to otherwise describe that, you know, right. but it's part of the National Baptist Convention, the Missionary Baptist Church Movement. And um, he was an ex-con preacher, and he was, you know, he called himself an OG preacher, and he had a big, strong congregation with lots of young families and children's, children's choir and all that good stuff. And a lot of elderly support and a lot of good people in the middle. His deacons, most of his deacons were ex-cons. And you know what? Nobody would have shot that church. <laughs> right. I felt so safe in that place. It was unbelievable. And I feel safe everywhere I go. And I come and go as I please in Kansas City or Kansas City, Kansas or anywhere else in terms of geographically speaking. I've never been afraid to go anywhere. But it doesn't matter. I'll go to Broadway or Main Street or Prospect or Quindaro or Minnesota Avenue wherever I want. I think that's my right too. I don't right. think I need a gun to do it. Right. But I've always been kind of cool with uh, being able to talk my way out of trouble. Right. I used to talk myself into trouble. You seem to be genuinely interested in some of the issues that impact society. I'm saying everybody doesn't have to agree on the same issues. But what should count is what people who put you in office vote for. The people who embrace the ideas that you put forward. They are the ones who are responsible for you getting elected. I think you've got a pretty good grasp on some of the issues that people are really concerned about. The problem that we have is that we need to get rid of some of these politicians who don't listen to what the people are telling them. Once they get in office, they do whatever they want to do. And then they try to force it upon people and make them accept going the way that they want them to go. So... That's the state of affairs in politics now, and I think we need more people like you to, to run for office that can probably eliminate a lot of that difficulty. I'd like to thank you for this interview. It's been very informative, and uh, I want to wish you luck on your campaign, sir. All right. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. Counterspin couldn't exist without stations like KKFI that put community first. We're proud to air every Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. And if you miss it, you can find it at kkfi.org. That's Counterspin every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. right here on KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Thanks for listening to KKFI. We are now adding new content to our social media sites every day. So be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901 FM. Thanks for supporting this community radio station since 1988. The deadline for Jackson County homeowners to appeal reassessments has been extended to July 31. Some homeowners have seen their assessments double, reportedly forcing some to sell. Jackson County has an automated online appeal filing system or email board of equalization at jacksongov.org or call 816-881-3309. This message is a public service of KKFI.
Last week on July 28th, we marked the 10-year anniversary of the killing of Ryan Stokes by the Kansas City Police down at the Power and Light District. Today on Jaws of Justice Radio, we will be playing a 30-minute portion of an hour-long interview where Keith Brown Ill is talking with Ryan's mother, Miss Noreen Stokes Crosby, and her attorney, Miss Cindy Short. The interview, along with Keith's commentary on the subject, can be heard in its entirety on our Facebook page and our Jaws of Justice radio podcast. We hope our listeners will find the way the KCPD and the judicial system handled this situation interesting, shocking, and infuriating. Good morning. This is Keith Brown Hill, and today we'll be doing an interview with Mrs. Noreen Stokes Crosby and Miss Cindy Short. Miss Noreen is the mother of Ryan Stokes who was unfortunately killed by the Kansas City Police Department back in 2013. And we have her on the air today, and we have her attorney with her, who is Miss Cindy Sharp. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I would ask how you're doing, but this is not a pleasant experience, So, and I know it probably gives you a lot of pain to have to recall these events. But we need to get this information out to the public and let them know what actually has taken place in this situation, because we don't want them to forget that this ever happened. So I'm going to start off, Noreen, with asking you, could you give us a little background on the situation that led up to all of this? My son, Ryan Stokes, went down to the power and light July the 28th, 2013, to have himself a good time with his friends. He was 24 years old, just a natural 24 year old trying to enjoy his life. And some way or another, that night turned into a nightmare. Ryan and his friends were accused of two incidents instead of the one that he got killed for. It supposedly started out as a stolen cell phone from the power and light. And then it turns into he supposedly had a gun and wouldn't put it down. So he loses his life over everything that night, July 28th, 2013. Okay, now, where was he at when he was supposed to have had this gun? He was in the parking lot, uh, power and light. I'm not totally familiar with the whole area there, but they were at some club or hanging outside of the nightclub or the area where all the young people hang. The altercation happened and police dispersed them by pepper spraying them. And so, you know, reaction is to either run or drop. He ran trying to get back to the car from all of this. He was in the parking lot down by the Kansas City Power Light. Okay, now where were these people he had the altercation with? From me being told, they were speaking with the police or pointing him out to the police. This is what I'm told. Two white boys points him out. Okay, now, are they accusing him of pulling a gun on them or having a gun while he was in the bar? No, they accused him of stealing their cell phone, stealing someone's cell phone. And he had his own cell phone, right? And he had his own cell phone. He had no reason to steal a cell phone. Well, and it's important to note, Keith, that Brian was not accused of stealing anybody's cell phone. That 
the accusation was never directed at Ryan. Okay. It was directed at another young man. And so that particular evening, Ryan and his buddies were down there celebrating a birthday. They never went inside Power and Light. You know, Power and Light is like a big block party. Young people went to just walk around and see friends. They saw a lot of friends that night. Ryan was sober. He was the designated driver. And he and his buddies had a really good time. They were running into friends from high school, friends that they worked with. And this is the very end of the night when the police are asking patrons to leave Power and Light, to leave the bars. And Ryan, Ollie, Kenny, and others are heading back to the car. They actually like being at Power and Light because of the police presence, which, which is the irony of this. And it is some white men from Johnson County who had been celebrating a 21st birthday and were extraordinarily drunk, who are coming out of a bar within Power and Light. And as they're doing so, one of the young men realizes that he has misplaced his phone and in a knee-jerk reaction, accuses the first African-American man that he sees, which is Ollie Otley. And it is not Ryan. And a shouting match takes place on the corner, which draws the attention of the police. And instead of doing what the police, I think, would have done in 10 years ago, 15 years ago, which would have interacted with these young people by saying, what's happening? What's going on? Instead, what they do is they immediately resort to spraying pepper spray into the crowd. And as a result, the crowd disperses. They run. But the last images that we have of Ryan is Ryan in a basketball position, a defensive position between his friend Ollie and the young man that is yelling at Ollie and accusing Ollie falsely of taking this phone. My guess is that that phone was in the bathroom or on the bar floor, but was not in the possession of Ollie, was not in the possession of Ryan. And we know that from all of the investigation that was done by the police, by our legal team, that there was no phone in their possession. And so these young people, when the pepper spray is sprayed into the crowd, the police are saying disperse. And so white young people, black young people, Asian young people, all of them disperse, including Ryan, including Ollie, including Kenny. And they begin to jog up the hill towards their car, which is parked in the lot at 13th and McGee, which when these young guys went to Power and Light, this is where they always parked. It's three in the morning. Lots of people are moving towards that parking lot. And how far is this from the place where the incident took place? It's about, it's a block, basically. Uh, it's a block up, and then it's going to be about a half a block north. And so this drunk man and his uncle moved towards a bike cop, and they're explaining that they don't have their cell phone, and some black guy took it. You can see them on video pointing up the street, and that initiates a foot pursuit. And that foot pursuit really had no probable cause. That was the first mistake that these officers made. And one of the things that we wanted to change was we found out that the KCPD has no foot pursuit policy. Foot pursuits are extraordinarily dangerous for civilians and they're dangerous for police. And so when that foot pursuit was initiated, Ryan didn't know it. Kenny didn't know it. 
Ollie didn't know it. And the police ran right by Ollie, which was the individual who had been accused of taking the cell phone. And there was no shouting, please stop, we need to talk to you. There was no indication to these young men that the police wanted to talk to them. And there was every indication from our uh, investigation of Ryan as a human being that if the police at any point said, we need to talk to you, we would like to talk to you, Ryan was the young man that would say, sure, I'll talk to you, be happy to talk to you. But as Ryan's turning the corner to go down to the parking lot, he does not know that the police are in pursuit because there's no indication of that. So when Ryan enters the parking lot, unbeknownst to him, there's been a call on the radio that says two black males, white t-shirts, and then their direction. And there are two uniformed officers north of that parking lot that are now starting to move. And the bike officers don't know that. Certainly Ryan doesn't know that. And so we're about to have a really tragic collision where untrained, not patrol cops are in the area and are about to make a fatal decision as it pertains to Ryan. Was there any other festivities going on at the Power and Light on that night besides these people going out to celebrate their birthday? Did they have any entertainment going on or for the general public or anything of that nature? It was a very busy night that night because we had a marathon going the next morning and there was a soccer tournament in town at Casey Sporting. And so it was actually a very busy July night where lots of things were going on. And so we had lots and lots of people in power and light. So we did have a pretty significant police presence, which we would want. But unfortunately, police have become so militarized that instead of interacting with the public in a way that is community oriented, when trouble starts, you know, it's a lot of approaching the public in a violent way, as opposed to what should have happened when that young man approached this cop literally three blocks from the police department. And this young man is saying, I can't find my cell phone. Okay, go file a report at the police department. It's three blocks away. There is a police department at Power and Light, which was steps away. Why are you initiating a foot pursuit, which is very, very dangerous, over a cell phone, for God's sakes? And they were never in the same location with these other people when a cell phone came up missing. No, no, they never were. And the thing about it is later when we deposed this this young man that had initiated this foot pursuit, he was so drunk that he doesn't have a recollection of this. And one of the things that should never happen is for a foot pursuit to be initiated based on the word of a man that is intoxicated. And so later when we deposed the officer that initiated that foot pursuit, he lied through his teeth and claimed that this individual was not intoxicated. But the individual himself said, I was so intoxicated, I don't even remember the event. So he just saw three black guys. This is a white guy. And he just took it upon himself to assume they must have been the ones who stole my cell phone simply because they were black. Absolutely. The initial allegation was racially driven. There is no question about it. No question about it. Okay. Now these people, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself and I'll straighten it out a little later, but these two people that made the accusation, were they included in the litigation that was filed against the police department? 
Sadly, you know, we looked at different ways in which we might be able to sue them, but there was not a pathway to sue them individually. So the best we could do what was to, you know, do what we did, which which was to depose them. And so they were witnesses in the case, but there wasn't a pathway to sue them. I also wanted to be able to sue the officer who had initiated the foot pursuit individually, like we sued Officer Thompson individually, but there was no pathway to sue him individually. Um, but Villafane, who was the officer that initiated that foot pursuit, in my view, um, you know, you, you would have wanted to show ways that he violated department policy, but the department had no foot pursuit policy. And so Villafane worked very hard to make up probable cause to demonstrate that he had a legitimate reason for initiating the foot pursuit, but that falls apart once the young man admits that he was intoxicated. Now, the other problem that Villafane caused was that when the drunk man and his uncle tells them about this alleged stolen cell phone, those two drunk people started to run after the alleged perpetrator of, of the theft, which now you've got a real problem. You've got these drunk guys running after which could cause other problems and which Villafane should never have allowed that to happen. So he's created two problems there at the end of the night. So the two problems were that you have officers engaging in a foot pursuit and then you've got the alleged victims who are also involved in the pursuit. Yeah. And those two drunk guys got to the parking lot really right ahead of the officers and our witnesses to the shooting itself. And we see them on dash cam video cowering at the fence outside of where the shooting occurs. Did they ever physically approach Ryan? No, they did not. Because Ryan was, again, not the person who they were accusing. It was Ollie Otley. They had run past Ollie Otley. Now, Ollie and Ryan are physically very different. Ollie is a small, slight individual who is in, in good shape, but he is physically, I mean, Ryan's nickname was Fatback. And mm-hmm. Ryan was a heavy duty person. Yeah, he was, he was, you know, he was meaty. He was athletic as well. You know, he was a basketball player too, but he looked like a football player who played basketball. Ollie right. looked like a basketball player. <laughs> so you would never mix up these two guys. Never in a million. Okay, now, was the cell phone ever recovered? No. My guess, it was in the bathroom of PBR or it was on the floor of that bar. So they were in the bar. Yeah. Two drunk guys. Yeah. But Ryan and his friends, it was two other people with him, right? Yeah. And they were never even in the bar. They were never in the bar. In fact, the drunk guys came from one direction on the sidewalk and Ryan and his friends were coming from a different direction. So they kind of met at the corner, but they never seen each other the whole night. And the drunk guy was thinking that he had dropped his cell phone when he was out on the sidewalk, which that never happened. But he was, like I said, he was so intoxicated, he doesn't even remember the event at all. Okay. Now, how did this situation develop where Ryan ended up being shot? 
So once Ryan crosses into the parking lot, he is going to Ollie's car, which is the car he came in. And because when the pepper spray was sprayed into the crowd, many people got hit and Ollie got actually hit in the eyes. And so Ollie hands Ryan his keys and says, get the car. And so Ryan is going up to the car and he was the designated driver anyway, and he's pulled in, backed into its spot. And so he's crossing over to the driver's side. And when he does that, Keith, he can't see the north end of the lot because he's he's looking to get into the car. Two cops, uniformed cops, are coming into the north end of the lot. And so as Ryan is opening his car door, the cops at the north end of the lot are coming in. Um, but the, now the bike cops are coming in from the south. And Ryan's looking at the cops from the south. And he sees Officer Straub. Officer Straub speaks to Ryan. Ryan steps forward to Officer Straub with his hands coming up like this. Officer Straub holsters his gun just as Officer Thompson shoots Ryan in the back twice. Officer Straub then pulls out his gun, prepared to shoot Officer Thompson because he doesn't know it's a cop. He doesn't know who's shooting because there's been no commands. Now, later, Thompson will claim to have made 10 commands, but Officer Straub and all officers and all civilians in the parking lot will say there were no commands. None. Okay, now, how far away was he from Ryan? He was moving the whole time, Keith. So he's from the time he's entering the parking lot until he fires his weapon, he's moving. But when he shoots Ryan, he's about, he's two parking spots north of Ryan. Ryan is also moving towards Officer Straub. So when he's shot, he goes from the driver's side door virtually to the front of the hood of his car and he drops right in front of Ollie's car because he's mortally wounded when he gets shot. Thompson shoots three rapid shots, hitting him twice. From what I understand about this situation, there was a lot of lies told to try to cover up what actually took place. Yes. Can you give me a list of details of all the lies and the things that were said that actually were proven not to be true? Yeah, so within two minutes, we have our first lie, which is the initial officer who calls in for report number, calls in for report number for assault of a law enforcement officer. So in the within minutes of the shooting, we have magically turned Officer Thompson into a victim and Ryan into a perpetrator. And so while Ryan is literally laying on the pavement, unarmed and bleeding to death, he is the perpetrator of the crime. And Officer Thompson is the victim of the crime which is assault of a law enforcement officer. So that's- And he's two parking spaces away from Ryan while he's laying on the ground. Yes, and Officer Straub, who was facing Ryan, knows that he's unarmed and he's yelling and he almost shot Thompson because Thompson had made no commands. And he goes to Ryan to pull him over to see, is there a gun? Where's the gun? Where's the gun? And there's no gun. But this is what typically happens in these shootings is the first thing we do is we turn the victim, African-American man, into the perpetrator. He's the bad guy. So that's right. the first thing that happens. And then when the media officer gets onto the scene, the next thing that happens is they tell the news reporters who get there re relatively quickly that we had a standoff. And so a standoff infers that we have a front-facing 
perpetrator to a front-facing cop where the cops are forced into a situation where they have to shoot the perpetrator. They have to shoot the guy that's in the standoff. So that's the story that they go with that 14 hours later when they come to the family and say, your son made us do it. He had a gun. He was in a standoff with the officer. We shot him five times in the chest. And so the real tragedy is that when these stories are told to many poor families who don't have any power in the situation will accept this narrative and not fight back. And they didn't walk into that situation. They walked into a a family, into a community that was going to find some power and not allow this narrative to stand. And that was not the expectation they were going to have. But here's the interesting thing here is Officer Thompson is African-American. Chief Forte was African-American. The officers they sent to deliver the news were African-American. And so this is a lot about the culture of the blue as opposed to anything else. And so the militarization of the police department, the violence of the police department, the cover-up by the police department is a culture and it it infects all of the officers that go into that department. Now, is there any footage of the actual shooting? So at the time, Forte fought body cameras. When he came in as chief, he did not want body cameras and he fought them. And by at this time of this shooting, no body cameras. There was a camera on the Board of Education building, but the quality of that camera was was poor. And so the footage that we have in the parking lot is very pixelated and so was not helpful to us. There is no video of the actual shooting. Now, what we did have was we had a police officer was in the parking lot who was a Liberty police officer. He was enjoying himself at the power and light, was trying to get out of the parking lot at the time the shooting happened. And so, although he didn't see the actual shooting, he knew that there were no commands given. He knew that the shooting happened within seconds of Ryan passing by his car. And he also knew that the officers were responsible for pushing back and eliminating witnesses that were on the street and in the parking lot at the time of the shooting. And so one of the things that you see in these shootings is this very active effort by the officers who come onto the scene to get rid of all the witnesses that are not helpful to them. And that absolutely occurred here. And we do have that on video, which is interesting. Now, how many officers were in the parking lot at the time that this happened? There were three bike officers, and then there was Thompson and his partner. So there were a total of five officers on duty in the parking lot at the time of the shooting. And there was this off-duty officer that was in the parking lot from the Liberty Police Department. Well, I know that African-American police officers, they sometimes have the same mentality as the white police officers, even towards their own race. Right. And what I was pondering over, and I was hoping that maybe somebody could answer, is it possible that a white officer might have shot Ryan and they got the black officer to take the blame for it, to cover it up, to try to ease racial tensions that they knew were going to certainly follow when this happened? Now, it's interesting because the fact that, that Thompson was black really never became very much of a feature in this case. I think a big issue for Thompson, to tell you the truth, 
was that Thompson had been a patrol officer for most of his career, but the nine years prior to this shooting, he'd been on a desk. That was his career choice. At something like 15 years that he'd been on patrol and he'd been on, you know, SWAT, he'd been on uh, major crimes, he'd been on pretty serious details. He had never fired his weapon. But I think the nine years that he was off patrol, you lose your muscle memory. You, know, you lose your, what you have in the street every day. And when he, and the training I think had in some ways scares these cops, you know, it's a lot about get home, get home, get home. And this idea that the streets are so dangerous. And, and I think they become prejudiced by the same stuff, you know, this whole white t-shirt business, that white t-shirts are dangerous somehow. White t-shirts on black males are dangerous somehow. And I think that Thompson was infected by that. I mean, he told me in the deposition as he was, I think really, you know, one, he lied, you know, he, he hadn't given commands, but he was trying to protect himself. He then said, well, I think that Ryan was trying to do suicide by cop. I put, what in the world would make you think that? There was no fact that would, would support that. Then he said, well, you know, he had watched these videos and trainings where if you didn't shoot first, then these cops get killed in these training videos they watch. And so you, they create such fear for these cops that these cops end up shooting first and asking questions later. And most of the times this is a successful strategy for them because they don't get punished. Well, uh, most of the time when they shoot, they end up killing the person that's being shot. So there's really no questions that can be asked because no. you can't talk to dead people. No, you can't. No. And, you know, and I'll tell you what, Keith, the, the whole department, the whole squad that night, the shooting team, really circled around him and they asked no questions. When the cops that were in the parking lot were questioned and you read their question and answers by the, the shooting team, there were probably two and a half pages long double space. They were maybe asked 10 questions apiece. When they questioned Ollie, when they brought him in for questioning, it the top of the page said investigation for felony murder. The interrogation lasted for 50 pages. Their intention was to try to prove that Ollie had stolen this phone and then charge him with Ryan's murder. That was how they were going to cover this up. So they were willing to take the life of not only Ryan, but take the life of Ollie Otley, who was a law-abiding father of, I think at that time, two little boys. I and mean, was he ever charged? Disgusting. No, because Ollie, Ollie was a stand-up, truth-telling, and he understood the game that was being played, even though he had no idea that they were looking at him for felony murder or that that was even possible, but he knew what his truth was. And so he was able to, you know, they would say things like, well, we have video. And he'd say, well, show me the video. And of course, they didn't have any video. And so the fact that the cops would even consider that was appalling. Okay, Noreen, could you tell the audience a little bit about how you were informed of this and what took place after the shooting when the police or whoever came to your house? Were you notified by telephone or did they personally come to your house to inform you of this? What were you told during this so-called investigation and 
the story that they had already put together. I was told, firstly, by Ryan's uh, good friend, Lover. Lover Lover is his name, but we call him Lover. Mm -hmm. He came to my door at 3 o'clock in the morning, banning, you know, a trouble knock, a mm -hmm. uh, hurting knock, telling me that something had happened to Ryan. Something, Ryan was down at the power line. He usually is with them uh, as well. He would be would have been with Ryan, but he stayed at home because he had uh, babysitting duties that weekend. So he was at home and he can't. But he knocked on my door, and he uh, was trying to see if we had heard anything or had anybody else contacted us. And I, I was asleep at that time. But you know, you get up with that knock. Right. And I got up and I woke my daughter up and I told her something's wrong. Uh, they're telling me that something has happened to Ryan. So I'm listening to that lover, but I'm also getting dressed and I immediately go down to the power light. I asked my daughter to take me to the power light. I wasn't familiar with how to get into there. So we went down there and we saw the lights and the police and everything and everything roped off off of 12th Street. I remember it was 12th Street. I don't know if that's McGee, Maine or, or what. But we go there and so I'm trying to ask an officer. We get an officer. I can't remember his name. And I'm like, I'm down here because I've been called and told that my son has been hurt or something is going on with my son. And I'm trying to find out. Keith, they rude to us. They're like, go sit down at the bus stop right here. Wait, we're going to go get, I guess, or so whoever's in charge or a sergeant or whoever. And he, the sergeant comes back to the bus stop where they tell us to sit to me and my daughter to have a seat. And he immediately starts saying, who are we? Who told us? What does my son look like? Which I guess that's, you're supposed to ask those questions. But then no good information, none at all. They tell us to go home and someone will call us. They give us some card and tell us they'll call us. So instead with me working at Truman, I go to the hospital because, well, if he's been injured or hurt, then maybe they've taken him to the hospital. So we get to Truman, and the police are there, but I'm not paying much attention to them. I'm trying to ask the nurses, did they bring anybody in and describe it right? Well, they tell me if they brought him in, we, we know it would be an alias because they wouldn't release his name. So that's when it really starts hitting. I'm feeling that something's wrong, something seriously happened to Ryan, and I'm not getting the answers. I'm not understanding what's happening here. So I proceed and I go on home. I get there, and, you know, as a mother, you just, I just can't be still. I just couldn't. And with him being my only son, baby boy, I just didn't want to accept it. And I wasn't trying to hear it, but it was there because then, we called the police department again. We're calling. 
and they tell us something like, just wait and hear the new. Did they tell me, Cindy, to wait? I think, they, I think you heard it on the yeah. news first. Yeah, well, uh, well, we heard it on the news first, but they wasn't trying to give us any answers at all. You know, and nobody officially ever contacted you. Nobody officially ever contacted me from the police department till later that Sunday evening. It had already been released on the news, the social media, and I had a friend that worked in the morgue that confirmed it for me that it was right. But the police had not made it to my home yet. Matter of fact, they called me when they were on their way to come to me and asked me, could we meet somewhere? instead of coming to my home. They wanted me to meet them somewhere. And I said, no, you can come to my home and talk to me. And they came to my home, keys like a SWAT team, armored, like we were going to do something to them really bad. They were prepared. It was not nice. It's still to this day, it, it haunts me. Okay, now what happened when they got there? When they got there... My home was full, full of family, full of friends. And like I said, they were prepared like they were ready. If we would have struck them or had a riot, they were ready. But when they got there, this detective, Randall, I'll never forget it. He came and he addresses himself and then he says, I don't, he didn't even give me an apology or nothing. He just directly says, they had to shoot Ryan because he wouldn't put the gun down. It was a standoff. And they shot him five times in the chest. Did Ryan mm -hmm. own a gun, to your knowledge? No. He didn't even own a gun? No. Never had any interest in owning guns? No. He used his hands. Okay, now he comes to your house and he starts telling you this story about they had a standoff. What happens then? I know this is causing you a lot of pain because I can hear it in yeah. your voice and I can see it in your face. I'm sorry. I, we have to this, go through this. We got to do it. I'm there. Um, when he tells me that, Keith, I think I passed out. I heard it, but I wasn't trying to believe it. I wasn't trying to hear it, but his, his dad and everyone else was really on the police telling them that they that's a lie. They, they are lying. That is not true. Uh, they kept trying to tell us, and my niece was asking, she was screaming, "Who, who's your witnesses? Where's the witnesses? And they just stuck to that, that there was a standoff, and they had to kill him. And none of us believed that. We still, to this day, we know that's not the truth. Ryan wasn't down there when trouble. He wasn't a troublemaker. He just wasn't. Okay, now when did you start learning or gathering facts to show that they had actually lied and fabricated this whole incident? When I called sin, when I got out of my shock zone and everybody was telling me that I was going to need an attorney and it was going to have to be an attorney that wasn't scared of the police. And once I called my attorney, that's when I started believing that it wasn't what they okay. were telling me. Now, how long ago was it between the time that you got the information from the police that you contacted Cindy? It was probably a week. It was very quick. After you started looking into the case, Cindy, 
what course of action did you pursue? So we moved very methodically. We talked to lots and lots of people and a lot of, lot of experts, but we eventually filed a 1983 lawsuit against Thompson, against the KCPD, against Chief Forte in federal court because Ryan's Fourth Amendment rights had been violated as a result of their unlawful murder of him. Now, did this case go to trial in the district court? No, because when you file a lawsuit in federal court, there are lots of hurdles and police and police departments have a lot of protections. And each of those protections were afforded to first KCPD and their hot zone program was something that we had challenged because it was why Thompson was on the streets that day and in our opinion should not have been. And so that was the first thing to fall. And then initially, Thompson was not afforded the qualified immunity. And that decision by Judge Wimes was taken up to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Eighth Circuit sent that decision back to Judge Wimes to rethink. And Judge Wimes then changed his decision and gave Thompson qualified immunity, which the Eighth Circuit liked better. And so we were then forced to take the case to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court only grants certiorari or the the right to hear the case to very few cases every year. And although we were very hopeful that they would take this case up and and re-examine qualified immunity, in the end, they didn't. Justice Sotomayor was our one angel who did believe that this was the case to reevaluate qualified immunity, but the other justices did not agree. So the case came to a close. So if you only had one dissenting opinion and one yeah. vote. Yeah. We, we may have had two, but you need four. So. Yeah. Well, how long did it take you to get to litigation in the district court? So we filed the lawsuit three years after the shooting. And so it took seven years from that period of time to the decision with certiorari. So it was three years of investigation and then seven years of litigation. I would say the first year, Keith, was for grieving for the family to allow them to really period without litigation. For us, it was investigation and then seven years of litigation. And Noreen, what else have you done besides carry on the litigation about Ryan's death? I've heard your name periodically about and the situation. You've been involved in some other activities, too, with other groups and people trying to call attention to this matter. What have you been involved in? It's a lot of the organizations that really have reached out to me. And when I first started out, I was with the group of One Struggle, where they were called KC One Struggle at that time. I went to SCLC. I also reached out to NAACP. So I've been really involved with a lot of organizations and speaking and standing for Ryan's name. We've done some protests. And we were honored to have Ryan a basketball court put in his name as well. That was his, I mean, love in basketball. But then, Keith, let me tell you, it starts from my heart of Ryan being four years old and playing with the, the Y. And then I moved him out of the Y into junior high school and high school. 
and community basketball teams that I was involved with him. And he played ball all the way up to his death. And he also played for the Kansas City Police League. I have trophies where he played for, I guess they call it the PAL. And he played ball for them. And that's why it tears me up that they don't recognize that Ryan had very good character of playing sports and reaching out to the community. How much media coverage have you had from the local news agencies? I, you know, I remember at one time I, I did an interview with you myself, I think, when it first happened. And yeah. uh, had you and the family there. Uh, yeah. But did, have it, has anybody else stepped up to try to have your story told to the public? Oh, yes. Uh, me and Cindy have. How many times have we been, Cindy? Yeah, we've uh, done a lot with KCTV. We've done a lot with... Um, public radio, we've done, we've really been blessed. We've done stuff with the Art Institute and yeah. and we really tried to do a lot of restorative justice types of activities. We currently have someone working on a book, we're working on a children's book. So we really feel that our activism is continuing even though the lawsuit and criminal charges, even though the criminal justice system and the civil justice system failed. Okay, now, I've seen a picture or two of Ryan when he was holding a little girl. Who was the little girl that, that he was holding on the picture? That's his daughter, Ryan. She's 11 years old. And, I mean, that was his pride and joy. She was too young to even understand what was happening then, right? Yeah, she was, I want to say she was around maybe 18 months when Ryan got killed. Yeah, that's now, do yeah. you have any other children besides Ryan? I know you said he was your only son. He has two sisters that are older than him. So Ryan was their baby brother. And then he was yeah. very, very close to his sisters. Sisters, so, yeah. Particularly yeah. to his um, nephew, um, Ryan. Ryan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I recall when we did the interview with you, you had some other gentlemen there. I don't know if they were his cousins or his nephews or whoever, but they were there at the interview and they had some information that they had gave us because we, we were trying to make the public understand what type of person Ryan was and they were very helpful in trying to give us some information about that. Yeah. We did a whole, there's on YouTube, you can find a lot of video testimonials about Ryan. We did family members, friends, and then Nareen did a really wonderful video that's still up where she tells the story through placards. So there's lots of really great information about Ryan if people are interested in knowing who he was as a human being. Okay, now can you yeah. give me some information about the basketball court? How did that come about? Early on, we had done some work with Nareen and Naraya and Brittany and talked about the concepts of restorative justice and what the non-economic needs were. We wanted to change policy, including the foot pursuit policy. We wanted an apology. We wanted them to withdraw the commendations. And we wanted a basketball tournament that was named for him. And through working with the artists at Art Institute, we were brought together with Sykes Industries, which is a group that does a lot of our wall art around the city. And they really came up with the concept of doing the basketball court. And they met with Nareen and Ryan's sisters and with Brittany and with Naraya. 
to help them pick the concepts and the colors. And I think it was two years ago, we gathered together on the anniversary of his death and dedicated that basketball court. And it was all through donations of private citizens as, as well as the donations of labor by Sykes Industries. And it really, it was a beautiful testament to Ryan which needs a little touch up now because it's been so well loved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other plans for the future as far as what needs to be done about this situation? Well, I think now we'll just be joining others in their fights for justice and particularly More Squared has the coalition that has filed to have another Department of Justice investigation come in and look at KCPD, not only for their hiring practices and their discrimination, mm-hmm against African-American officers, but also the violence that they perpetrate against the community. So we certainly want to be part of that. Um, We want to continue to speak up against qualified immunity and be visible. We want Ryan's name, and this has been true forever, to be part of the national conversation. Ryan's name is now in a Supreme Court opinion that will be forever. And we have a justice who believed that there was a terrible injustice here in Kansas City. And so we will uh, continue to be part of that fight. Now, at the time that Ryan was killed, I imagine that there have probably been numerous other incidents, but they, they weren't being covered or highlighted at the time that this took place. I think the biggest thing that had happened before Ryan had got killed was Trayvon Martin. Yeah. But we have had uh, just almost a ton of incidents that have taken place throughout Missouri since here in Kansas City, here in St. Louis, and various other places. I highlighted some of those situations in the commentary that will precede this interview. And we've had the situation with George Floyd. And I don't have any doubt that until something is done, that there are going to be a lot more incidents like this. We have to make the public understand that if you want this to stop, we have to all become a part of this. So I appreciate both of you coming in to do the interview with me. And I want you to know that if there's anything I can do personally to be of assistance to you, all you have to do is contact me. And if I'm available, I'll be right there on the spot. Thank you. Thank you so much, Keith. I think our time is about up, so. Okay. All right. Thank you, Keith. And thank you very much. Yes, we appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. While African Americans were busy preparing to celebrate the 4th of July this year, a holiday that is really a mockery when it comes to black people, the United States Supreme Court sent another reminder to the people of Kansas City, Missouri, and elsewhere, that black people in America still are not free, and that we can still be murdered by the police anytime, anywhere, for any reason in the tradition of modern-day lynchings. On July 3rd, just hours before Independence Day was set to begin, the High Court rejected the appeal in the Ryan Stokes murder, which was wrongfully, recklessly, and willfully committed by Kansas City policeman William Thompson. Ryan's mother, Mrs. Noreen Stokes Crosby, 
had appealed the decision by a lower court that gave Thompson qualified immunity for shooting Ryan in the back while Ryan was attempting to surrender. Since July 28, 2013, the date of Ryan's death, Noreen has been fighting this grave injustice. Yet Thompson was never suspended, is still employed at the KCPD, was even given a commendation by the Board of Police Commissioners for killing Ryan, which was later revoked. And Thompson has also refused to apologize to Ryan's family for this tragic injustice he committed. So what all of this means is that if you are black and the police want to shoot you, all they have to say is that they thought you had a gun. And none of what they claim even has to coincide with the facts, but they can still get away with it. Qualified immunity is supposed to mean that if a government official does something that is illegal, but there is no law which could have given him or her guidance on the subject, then the conduct of that official can be legally excused. But since when is shooting somebody in the back while they have their hands in the air and are attempting to surrender? not clearly understood to be wrong. The problem with qualified immunity is that its real purpose is to give government officials a way to escape accountability, and qualified immunity always ends up being absolute immunity when the police and other law enforcement officials are beating and killing black people, no matter what the circumstances are. Technically, there is no such thing as qualified immunity in this state. Because the Missouri Constitution requires that for every injury, there must be a remedy. Article 1, Section 14. But qualified immunity eliminates what our state constitution intended to remain in place. So now, unless we are willing to riot or take the law into our own hands when something like this happens, we literally have no other recourse. You can call that last statement whatever you want, but there is simply no other way to interpret the message that the Supreme Court is sending by issuing this kind of ruling. Waiting on the judicial system to give you justice in cases like these is futile. It's just not going to happen, no matter how egregious the wrong or the wrongs may be. These kind of messages not only endangers the lives of private citizens, but they endanger the lives of the very police officers the courts claim that they want to protect. If the police stop you for any reason and they think or they claim to think you have a gun, we already know what can happen based on examples of what rogue cops have done to people in the past all over this country. So if the cops stop you, you can sit there and hope they just don't kill you for nothing or you can grab your gun and just start shooting. Some people keep saying that better training for police officers is the answer, but I strongly disagree. Arguments like these are intended to misguide people and lead them in the wrong direction. And here is the reason why. It is no secret that police departments all across the country have been heavily infiltrated by white supremacist organizations. The FBI, the Department of Justice, and the White House have all confirmed this. So how is better training going to help in these kind of situations? Many of these police-involved shootings are motivated by white cops' racist attitude towards blacks. When these white racist cops leave the station to go out on patrol, their minds are already made up that they want to kill a black person. 
and they will be looking for any excuse they can find to do it. Many times, their bosses, the prosecutors, the judges, and other officials whom these cops have to answer to are okay with this because these officials have the same attitudes towards blacks. So when a shooting happens, the higher-ups are willing to ignore it or help the cops involved cover up their guilt. Therefore, having a job as a police officer has become a sanctuary for racist rogue cops, and all the better training in the world is not going to change that kind of attitude. We have to have better early detection methods in screening people who apply for these jobs. We must discontinue the practice of simply throwing a badge, a uniform, and a gun on just any stray dog who wanders into the police station. If it is at all possible, we have to learn to recognize criminals who don't have criminal records and deny them the opportunity to commit a crime in the name of the law before it occurs. Unfortunately, that didn't happen in the case of William Thompson, who killed Ryan Stokes. It didn't happen in the case of Darren Wilson, who killed Michael Brown. It didn't happen in the case of Jason Stockley, who killed Anthony Lamar Smith. It didn't happen in the case of Eric DeVolcanier, who killed Cameron Lamb. It has failed to happen in every case where a cop has shot somebody in the state of Missouri. And it has failed to happen over and over again, too many times, in too many other cases elsewhere involving too many others. Now, we appreciate the dedication, the funding of private citizens, the time and labor of various artists who have tried to memorialize Ryan's time here on this earth. But we can't just settle for a basketball court being named in Ryan's honor because he used to play on it. What we really care about is Ryan's mother receiving justice for her son. We care about all of the other mothers receiving justice for their sons and daughters who have also been wrongfully killed by the police. And we care about receiving some assurance that this city and this country is trying to take more meaningful actions to ensure that incidents like these will not keep happening in the future. In the case of Cameron Lamb, not only did Eric DeVolcanier have no justification for shooting Mr. Lamb, but he planted a gun in Cameron's car so he could claim that Cameron was getting ready to shoot him and that he killed Mr. Lamb in self-defense. In November of 2021, DeVolcanier was convicted for the murder of Cameron Lamb here in Jackson County Circuit Court, but he only received a six-year sentence and has yet to serve even one day in jail. He is currently resting comfortably at his home while he awaits a possible pardon from the governor. If that doesn't happen, the Volcaneer's conviction could still get thrown out on appeal due to an intentional lack of diligence by the Missouri Attorney General's office, who is supposed to be fighting to maintain the Volcaneer's conviction, but most likely will not. Governor Mike Parson and Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey just recently forced St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner to resign. They claimed she was not sending killers and other dangerous criminals to jail and was letting them back out on the streets. What she was really doing was exposing corruption in the system and refusing to prosecute cases that were tainted by false testimony by cops and snitches and where there was a legitimate lack of evidence. The Vulcanier has been legitimately proven in a court of law to be a real killer and dangerous person. 
Yet Parson and Bailey now appear to be willing to actually do the same thing in the Valkaneer's case, which they falsely accused Kim Gardner of. These type of politicians make a mockery of justice with their shameless, outrageous, and unforgivable hypocrisy. But despite the outcome in the Ryan Stokes case, we still need more people like Miss Noreen Stokes Crosby and attorney Cindy Short to keep on fighting to try to change this corrupt ass system. My name is Keith Brown Eel. Thank you for listening.